Bitcoin fixes the money, the Beef Initiative fixes the food and nutrition. Step into some new awareness that incorporates some much needed food intelligence into your life. This is Texas Slim with Texas Slim's vision. Uh, Dr. Phil Ovedia uh, and I have known each other for a while now. It's a little over a year. We came across each other on uh, Twitter and we became kind of followers of each other. I started following Dr. Phil Ovedia because of um, kind of his stance within nutrition. Um, so welcome, Dr. Phil Ovedia. Good to have you finally. We've been trying to plan this for a while. Thanks for coming on the Texas Slims Vision. Yeah, it's great to be here with you, Tex. Um, you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Uh, as you said, we kind of stumbled across each other uh, over on the interwebs, and it really, you know, has been enlightening to me as I've been on my journey, uh, both for personal health and for how I manage uh, the health of my patients and how that has changed over the years. And, you know, how over the past few years, uh, the nutritional, uh, you know, things that I have learned have really started to intersect with larger, um, you know, societal issues that I'm sure we're going to get into. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty broad discussion. It's kind of hard to leap into this as far as, you know, we say doctor, we say, you know, nutrition and diets and stuff. Let's, let's kind of let everybody know what type of um, doctor you are, uh, your profession, your specialty, uh, and maybe how you've evolved and how, you, you know, kind of the direction that you're going with that practice. Yeah, sure thing. So I am a cardiac surgeon, a heart surgeon, and I have been, you know, taking care of people with heart disease uh, for about 20 years now. And, you know, interestingly, for most of that time, I was progress becoming progressively unhealthy um, myself. I have been obese since childhood. And, you know, I grew up in a household that largely followed the U.S. dietary guidelines. Uh, my brother is a type 1 diabetic, so we didn't have sugar in the house. We ate all of the, you know, low-fat stuff that we were supposed to eat. We drank skim milk uh, on our uh, Cheerios or Wheaties for breakfast every morning. We had margarine instead of butter. And, you know, as I said, we were a pretty typical American family growing up in the 1980s. And despite that, you know, I became progressively obese. My parents were both obese. Uh, my siblings were obese. Um, and, you know, the other part of that equation that you always hear, activity, you know, we, we had that box checked as well. You know, I was active year-round. I played sports. I rode my bicycle everywhere. I walked a lot. And despite that, I, I was, you know, always overweight. And it got worse, you know, as I went through college and then I went to medical school and that's a very stressful time and, you know, long hours and, and eating, you know, in the hospital a lot, uh, which ironically made me even more unhealthy. Um, and, you know, a number of times uh, along the way, I would say I, I tried to lose weight. 
I did what I learned in school. I ate less, I moved more, I counted my calories, I ate a low fat diet, and I would have some short term success. I would, you know, lose weight here and there, but I would always gain back and more. And about five years ago, five or six years ago now, I really sort of came to a reckoning uh, because by that point, I was morbidly obese. I was pre-diabetic and I realized that I was going to end up on my own operating table, so to speak. You know, I realized that I was headed down the same pathway that most of the patients that I was operating on every day for their heart disease had gone down. Uh, But I really didn't know what else to do. And fortunately, about that time, I started to come across some alternative thoughts around, you know, why we get obese, why we get unhealthy. Uh, My journey really started with hearing uh, Gary Todd's deliver a talk at a medical conference, uh, sort of ironically enough. And for the first time, you know, I heard the concepts that the types of food that we eat are more important than the amount of food that we eat. And that made a lot of sense to me. And I kind of got into the low carb, uh, you know, space, low carb nutrition. I had great success myself. I was able to lose over a hundred pounds and uh, ultimately, you know, kind of went through a journey of low carb, low sugar, uh, kind of keto. And for the past three and a half years now, uh, almost four years now, actually, I've been largely on a carnivore diet. And I am in the best health of my life, the best shape of my life. Uh, And more importantly, I think during that journey, I came to realize that, you know, what I thought was at the root cause of heart disease, the disease that I faced every day uh, with my patients um, and most of the other chronic diseases that we face, uh, it really is due to what we are eating, our food environment. And I've come to realize, you know, how important nutrition is, how important our food supply is, and how food really does have the power to heal and how most of the problems that we face, uh, you know, in society, most of the medical problems we face in society today are preventable, you know, and uh, that change starts with changing the way that we eat. So I have now sort of refocused my career some, even though I continue to work as a heart surgeon, I now have sort of a secondary mission to educate people, as many people as possible, how to avoid the need for heart surgery, how to stay off of my operating table. That's, um, that's a heck of a story. And it's, it's quite a journey because if you look at, you know, when the general public and they hear, you know, well, you're a doctor. And I've I've been wanting to ask this a question and I've seen some of your tweets and some of your signals that you've sent out as far as, you know, sometimes the medical field does not truly understand a lot of the nutrition or the hazards of the nutrition that, um, you know, that Americans face every day. Was it something that was kind of a shocker to you because you were very intentional with your diets? You did kind of follow the, you know, the the pyramid. You tried to do the right things. I mean, even being a highly educated heart surgeon, was there a disconnect there that you you were shocked about uh, that once you did have some clarity about basically nutrition and diet and how everything was kind of upside down? Was that was that hard to get to or do you see it a lot in the medical field? 
Well, it was extremely hard to get to because, you know, what I came to realize is that almost everything I had learned uh, around nutrition uh, was, you know, not very well uh, based in science uh, and quite frankly was just incorrect and had led us down a pathway where, you know, we have gotten to be very unhealthy. And perhaps the even bigger realization that I you know, had come to, that I have come to, uh, and that I had to come to grips with, is that we, as a society, you know, don't really even believe anymore that we can be healthy. We, we have come to believe that it is normal to become unhealthy as we get older. And the reality is, is that that does not need to be true. And, you know, we, because of that, we accept a lot of things that we just should not accept. Um, and, you know, just again, starting with the, the disease that I face every day, heart disease, um, which has been the number one killer in the United States and worldwide for the past 30 years. And I now believe, um, I am now confident in saying that a large portion of that is preventable. And we should not be dealing with such an epidemic of heart disease. And the main reason that we are dealing with this epidemic of heart disease is because of the foods that we are eating. And it is, I think it's a shocker for everybody. We all live in a cog, kind of a, a form of cognitive dissonance that we can't really believe that, you know, the consumption models that we've created in, in within our society could be basically has led us to this point of medical metabolical bankruptcy as far as a nation you know we know that our health is compromised at this point in time we have a hard time admitting that and i like to i like to look at the 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 type of denial that we have within our food supply and what it is actually doing to our health is a form of denial that you see you know in, in, in addiction in a form of addiction, be it chemical addiction or whatever, you know, our food has become an addiction in a way. And it's hard for people to come to terms that their consumption is, is, is something that is based on some form of deception. Yeah, I think that's, you know, very well said. And, you know, the, uh, you know, I perhaps give more latitude than I should, uh, you know, in, uh, discussing whether, you know, this was really an intentional deception or that just, you know, the group think sort of, uh, you know, got started down the track. Um, you know, we go back to, uh, you know, really the 1950s when we made the choice, we made the decision that, you know, uh, saturated fat was the primary evil in the food that we were eating, essentially. And uh, because of that, you know, many subsequent decisions were made that we had to reduce the amount of fat in our diet, specifically the amount of saturated fat. And, you know, that led us down a, a certain pathway. And we have to step back and realize that that was a hypothesis. And there was a competing hypothesis at the time that, you know, it was primarily the sugar uh, in the foods that we were eating that was causing, you know, the rising incidence of heart disease at the time. And, you know, for whatever reason, we could argue, you know, whether it was, uh, uh, you know, a sort of uh, 
Maleficence or not. Um, but, you know, we made that choice that it was saturated fat. We headed down that pathway. And what I see now is here we are, you know, 70 years later, our health has clearly continued to worsen. And yet we can't go back and question that underlying, you know, uh, hypothesis that saturated fat, you know, is the primary problem in our food supply. Uh, and that I think is our biggest problem today. You know, not that we made the wrong choice, but that we can't undo that choice. And anyone that questions that choice, anyone that questions that basic underlying assumption, um, you know, is, is just labeled as a, uh, you know, a quack, uh, a charlatan, uh, whatever, you know, whatever term you want to use. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, something we're doing is not right because our health has only continued to deteriorate as a society. And we need to step back at this point and say, you know, we need to change our path. And I think that's the biggest problem. People don't know how to basically take that first step into understanding that form of awareness and clarity that is needed to make that intentional change. Uh, it, it is an individual choice, you know, and it is not a judgment. I mean, you, you've said that you, you battled with uh, weight problems your whole life. It, it, and that's it, it, it becomes a tough to subject because, you know, it comes across that, oh, you're attacking somebody. And it really isn't. Like I said, it's not a judgment, but it is a form of clarity that we need to accept. You know, acceptance is the key. And once uh, we as a maybe as a nation, as an individual can accept that there was a form of manipulation. We don't even know if it was a deception. That's really not the point. What we have to do, and I think this is the hard part for everybody, is like, where do I point my compass of change? Where do I point my compass of intentionality of really understanding? Because I think I'm educated with the food system. I I very much pay attention to everything that I'm supposed to do. I do follow the non-fat. What I found out is the best way to get to this, the truth of the matter right now is starting with the source of the seed and how we look at our food and bring some food intelligence into where our food is coming from the processes that it goes through, the business side of it on the global scale, and the understanding of who actually has control of our food supply. And a lot of times people are shocked that it is a chemical company. And, you know, that chemical company has control over our seed. It has control over the processing. It has control over the chemicals, the herbicides, the pesticides, everything that we use and we ingest. And so once you start from ground zero, from from the soil and up through the seed, you, you're able to see that. And it, it, it's not a hard process. You, your eyes get open very fast. And you can look at from the 1950s. I believe in 1950s, Dwight D. Eisenhower had a heart attack. You know, and that's where we insert antel keys and, you know, the, the myth about cholesterol as far as it was horrible for you and animal fats. And I mean, you know it better than anybody. But with that narrative and that hypothesis, it became the, the standard of health. Well, it became a standard of health is because there was a massive marketing campaign behind it from an industrial food complex has basically become kind of out of control and nutrition was thrown out the door many years ago. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, what really is most interesting to me is, you know, I started, you know, as a heart surgeon and looking at my own health and looking at the health of my patients. And that sort of led me down a path. And, you know, uh, many other physicians like myself have, you know, kind of gone down that same path and come to the same conclusions. And then, you know, you started looking at it from the, you know, food supply uh, standpoint. And like you said, starting from the ground up, starting from the seed. And, you know, again, I've spoken to many other people, uh, you know, ranchers and, and uh, farmers and food producers who have come to the same conclusions that you have. And here we are meeting in the middle uh, and, you know, coming to the same spot, starting from really two opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, you know, you starting from the ground and me starting from the disease that people are suffering from. And yet they, they've led us to the same spot. Uh, and that is that, you know, the, the food that we eat, the way that food is produced, uh, the way that food is, is you know, delivered to us and, and uh, handled and processed um, is the ultimate determinant of our health. And if we're going to change our health, we need to start with changing the food. For the process that you went through, um, just just on a personal level, how did you approach it whenever you, you kind of realized that, hey, maybe more animal protein needs to be in my system? How, you know, how, um, how did you go about it to make that first step to say, you know, this is something I'm going to do and to where it wasn't overly intimidated? Where did you get empowerment from? Yeah. So, like I said, you know, my journey really started with uh, Gary Tobbs. And, you know, at, at the time that I uh, came across him, he had just written the case against sugar. And, you know, I kind of read his books, I read, you know, a lot of other literature, uh, you know, that really kind of pointed towards, you know, the ill effects that sugar uh, in particular has on our health. So, you know, I started cutting out sugar uh, and, you know, then it really includes all carbohydrates, you know, realizing that, you know, all carbohydrates break down to sugar in the body. And so I eliminated sugar and carbohydrates. And of course, that naturally leads you to you're going to be eating more protein. Uh, you're going to be eating, you know, more natural fats, animal fats in particular. Um, and, you know, as I did that, I just started feeling better and better. I, you know, saw all of my health problems uh, resolving. And, you know, again, I went back to the literature. I went back to the science. I started looking into the history, you know, all that history that you talked about, how we got here and, you know, Ansel Keys and the American Heart Association, which, by the way, was an organization that I was intimately involved in. I was fundraising for. I was president of my local chapter. And, you know, I, I very much believed in their mission and what they were putting forward uh, until I didn't. Uh, until I, you know, came across the, you know, sort of alternative theories, you know, going back to the early 1900s, uh, the evidence behind that. And, you know, again, it, it, it all came together, you know, my personal journey, 
the journey that I then saw a lot of my patients go on, you know, as I advise them uh, on this sort of, you know, I call it new information, but it was only new information to me. It wasn't really new information to, to the world. Uh, but, you know, we, we, I saw it work repeatedly for them. I started encountering more and more people, more and more practitioners that, you know, had had success with this. And uh, it just sort of naturally led me uh, down the pathway. Uh, and then, you know, I was sort of on, I guess what you would say, you know, it was more of a keto, low carb type diet. And then, you know, now going back about three and a half, four years, I came across the carnivore community, uh, Sean Baker uh, to start with, and then Paul Saladino and, and uh, Michaela Peterson and, and you know, uh, a few others. And, you know, at first, to be honest, that sounded a little crazy to me, uh, you know, the fact that you could get by with eating only animal products. Uh, but at that point, I was eating, you know, so little uh, other stuff that I said, well, let me give it a try. And I saw even more improvement in my health. Um, I found it to be an easier uh, way of eating to maintain for many reasons. And, you know, here I am four years later now, uh, you know, I've been largely carnivore for the past four years. I am in the best shape of my life. I feel, you know, great. All of my health metric, all of my health numbers look great. So it's working for me. I'm seeing it work for more and more of my patients. And there's, you know, and then I, like I said, I can go back and I can find the evidence that, uh, you know, really shows that this is the way that humans were supposed to be eating. And, and I like that because you, you bring up every angle that you can, All right, okay. You're a heart surgeon. You're, you're a trained medical doctor. You have access to giving your, you know, having the correct physicals, having the correct blood work, you, you've been able to track this in a way that a lot of people probably wouldn't be able to do. And, you know, as far as proof of work that you've proven, um, there's really no holes in your game here. <laughs> I mean, you're, you've put it together to where, you know, the, you cannot contest this. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing as far as realization to come through, especially you as an individual, as a man in feeling the best you've ever felt, but also as a doctor saying, you know, I can really be a good doctor now. It's almost like a, a you have a new realm that you can leverage that you know that you're saving people's lives now. And, and you can talk to your patient as, as far as another patient and say, this is really something that, you know, this is going to help you. And the type of trust that you're probably forming with your, your patients and your current patients, especially the ones that have had success, it must be very rewarding for you right now. Yeah, it really does, you know, start to come together well, because, you know, as a heart surgeon, um, I know that, you know, I, I am helping people sort of in, a, in, a, in an acute time of need. You know, they, they have a serious problem with their health and the surgery that I can do can improve that. But what I've come to realize is that that, that surgery does not change the underlying problem. You know, I, I am not correcting with the surgery the things that led to them getting to them having the surgery. And now understanding the nutrition and everything as I do, I can then help them also change that underlying process. Because the simple fact is, is that, you know, 
many of the people who undergo successful heart surgery uh, still end up dying of heart disease. You know, they just die later of heart disease. Uh, and, and, you know, that's not, uh, uh, that's not to minimize that. You know, we, we give them, you know, in many cases, many extra years of life, but we're not changing the underlying process. And so what I've now come to realize is that we can change the underlying process for those people that I end up doing heart surgery on. But more importantly, I want to get to those people earlier so that they never need the heart surgery in the first place. Because ultimately, no matter how good a heart surgeon I am, or how, no matter how good all the other heart surgeons and, and heart physicians are out there, we can never make the patient as good as if they never developed the heart disease in the first place. Uh, and now I know that, you know, I have the power, other physicians have the power to prevent those patients from getting the heart disease in the first place. And that's a, that's a big transitional shift in, in your business model, really. Um, and as far as saying that, because you are changing, you know, a state of mind, you're changing a procedure that's more preventive in the beginning instead of reactionary. And how do you, how do you, how do you implement that into your practice? Because you got to, you, you must be coming up with roadblocks, perhaps, of uh, people fighting back against you for maybe being more uh, proactive instead of reactive. How have you seen that affect you? Is it something that you're going to leverage that's going to actually benefit you in the long run, or is it something that's been financially stressful because of the the, the business model that you might have changed? Where are you lying yeah, about that right now? I mean, ultimately, it is going to be a huge disruption in our healthcare system. You know, our healthcare system is designed and set up to take care of sick people. It is not designed to make people healthy and to keep them from getting sick in the first place. And, you know, in terms of my sort of personal business model, I guess you can say, uh, you know, it has been a big shift. Uh, you know, I have had to set up essentially a you know, alternate practice. I have a whole separate practice. It's a telemedicine practice, um, you know, outside of the, the sort of mainstream healthcare system. I don't deal with insurance companies within that practice. Um, and it, it's basically an alternate uh, mode of practice. And it takes patients that are motivated to seek that out. Uh, ultimately, you know, my hope over the long run is that, you know, this has enough of an impact, you know, not only what I'm doing personally, but, you know, what many of the other physicians within this space are doing, within the metabolic health space are doing, that we ultimately can carve out a piece of the healthcare system to be able to offer this to patients. Um, but right now, largely, you know, it's necessary to basically go outside the system. Uh, to be able to do this because the healthcare system just does not have the, the structure uh, to do this. No, it, it, it's definitely, it's not, it's not designed for any type of preventive. And if it is preventative, it's kind of a loophole that doesn't really benefit the patient at all. As far as, you you know, changing and being transformate, transformation as far as that you're going through, how many other physicians do you know that are kind of following you or helping uh, lead with you or, you know, making the same changes as you are? Is, is it something that you see that is growing? 
growing in spirit and actually, you know, intentional movement to do what you're doing? Um, it is growing, but it's still very small, you know. So, for instance, uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, I was at one of the uh, low-carb medical conferences, and there were probably, you know, 40 or 50 physicians there. Um, and that's a lot better than, you know, a few years ago at the same conference when there were maybe, you know, 10 to 20 physicians there. Uh, so, you know, it is growing, uh, but it is uh, a very small part of the healthcare. Uh, movement. Now, you know, we see different sort of pockets of it. You know, for instance, uh, Verda Health uh, is an organization that has, you know, gained some headway uh, with low carbohydrate nutrition, specifically for diabetes therapy. And, you know, they have published results and they were able to get a contract with the, uh, you know, the VA health system and many of the other, uh, you know, kind of large uh uh, insurers now uh, to, to be able to get that to more people. Uh, but again, it, it, it's, you know, we're talking a tiny fraction of the healthcare system. The mainstream healthcare system still does not recognize this as a viable option as a possibility. Uh, you know, and, and type 2 diabetes is probably the best example of this because, you know, if you ask physicians, you know, can you reverse type 2 diabetes? Uh, the vast majority of physicians are going to answer no to that question, that it cannot be reversed. It can only be managed. Uh, but we now have large patient experiences showing that it can be reversed. Uh, Verda Health, as I mentioned, published their two-year data where on their program, 60% of their patients had reversed their type 2 diabetes, meaning they were off of their medications with normal blood sugar control. And yet, as I said, if you go to, you know, if you pick 100 random physicians in this country and ask them, is, is it possible to reverse type 2 diabetes? My guess is 90 to 95 uh, of those 100 physicians would say, no, it's not possible. By knowing that, is that something that's daunting to you or is that something that you feel like, hey, if I can create enough demand and I can actually have enough, um, you know, success because it's based on a new form of truth that people are accepting, you know, doesn't the demand then kind of help change the industry as far as, you know, uh, switching it in making a pivot and creating that awareness what is that catalyst that you see or is it something that you don't really need to worry about because you're going to be very intentional with what you're doing and you're going to be, you know, pretty powerful for what you're doing. Do you see an industry shift or is this going to be more into, you know, just other doctors like you coming along and kind of a slower approach to this? Yeah, I think ultimately it is going to be a grassroots movement. And, you know, I, as I see more physicians influencing more patients, um, you know, those patients then go out and influence their circles. Uh, and, you know, it, it starts to, um, you know, grow from there. Um, in terms of the system tipping point, I think ultimately, you know, we have to 
we have to deal with the fact that, you know, healthcare, the cost of healthcare is bankrupting not only the United States, but, you know, many countries throughout the world uh, are on the brink of uh, just not being able to afford to take care of their populations anymore. And so, you know, ultimately we have to come to a reckoning with that fact. Uh, you know, we've been trying to control the cost of healthcare as it is for a long time now without success. And really the only way to make a significant impact on the cost of healthcare is to have less sick people. Uh, so, you know, I'm hoping that that pushes the system that opens enough people's eyes, uh, you know, to, to look in this direction and what can we do to actually stop, you know, prevent people from getting sick in the first place. Uh, but again, you know, it's, there are a lot of forces working against that. The healthcare industry uh, is a business. Um, you know, we, we've, uh, as much as we want to, you know, kind of view it as a sort of a fundamental right uh, or, you know, one of these kind of social programs, you know, ultimately, you know, it is a business and it is in the business of taking care of sick people. Uh, so, you know, the, the, goals of the healthcare system are not necessarily to make people healthy. They're there to take care of sick people. And that's a good point. You're talking about diabetes and I, it was a couple of months ago. I, I can't even remember. And I believe you tweeted out and uh, you were talking about insulin and how diabetes is a, it's a maintenance disease. And, you know, within that maintenance, there's a cost associated with that. And I believe, you know, for every person that's on insulin, it's, it's averages out around eight, nine hundred dollars a month just for the insulin. And so by saying that, it's, you know, you said that there's a lot of powers that be that you're having to battle. Well, you have a pharmaceutical industry that basically if they're making nine hundred dollars off a month off of an insulin patient, why would they want to change that? Because they've got it set up. We're saying, well, they're going to subsidize that cost. No, basically they're making profit off of no matter what, as long as they can keep that price point at $900 a month. And if they can keep that person on insulin for the rest of their life, I mean, that goes into, you know, making profits. And it doesn't have anything to do with that patient per se, it's its health, her or his health. It has everything to do with keeping that hamster wheel of production going within the insulin and to the injections into the patient. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, what you said there is exactly true that the patient has become uh, a sort of, um, you know, it is not at the center of healthcare. Uh, they are marginalized, uh, you know, part of healthcare, and largely the physicians are as well. Um, you know, I, I talk about, you know, sort of uh, how handicapped physicians are in the healthcare system today. They largely do not have autonomy to make, you know, their own decisions about how best to take care of their patients. Uh, you know, there are so many other forces that are making those decisions for them, uh, you know, whether it's the insurance companies, whether it's, you know, sort of the administrative structure, uh, you know, both at the local and sort of, you know, uh, higher governmental levels of the healthcare system, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, as you said, uh, you know, they all have a I think increasingly disproportionate role within the healthcare system. 
And we need to get back to a point where the doctor and the patient are at the center of the healthcare system, not all of these other uh, entities. Is going in, you know, because everybody gets into being a medical doctor in the medical field because they're, they want to serve, you know, they want to save people's lives. They want to be part of a solution for, for patients. Basically that's, that's what you're, you're trying to fix things coming into the medical industry, going through years of school. Is any of this ever discussed where you can actually make better decisions maybe as you're going to get your medical degree or as you're choosing the profession within the medical industry? Is there any form of education that is being presented to the students? Uh, You know, I would have to say largely not. I mean, and realize that it's been, you know, now 20 uh, almost 25 years since I graduated medical school, um, you know, but what I see is really it's moved in the other direction, uh, you know, to be successful in medical school these days. Uh, it basically, um, you know, forces physicians into uh, that sort of groupthink mentality. Uh, you know, we, we are taught to basically, you know, not question the the well-accepted narratives around health uh and that you know most of the thing uh most of what we learn you know in medical school is fact it can't be questioned and you know the best doctors are the ones that are best able to sort of just follow the pathways uh that are laid out in front of them um and and that used to not be the case you know as as recently as you know, the 1980s, the 19, you know, early 1990s, um, you know, you just look at the sort of um, business models around healthcare, you know, and realize that up until, you know, probably around 2000, the majority of physicians were still in, you know, private practice. They were working for themselves. They were in small businesses. And now, um, you know, that that model has completely shifted and the vast majority of physicians are employed by, you know, large entities, healthcare systems, uh, for the most part. Um, and even if you are in private practice, you're still not truly independent because you're beholden to the insurance companies. You know, they set the rates that you get paid for everything. They dictate, you know, essentially how many patients you're going to need to see in a day to be able to, you know, make a living. And so, you know, the truly independent physician doesn't exist anymore. And I think that is at the detriment of the patient care. It's interesting you bring that up. We look at doctors and, you know, who can define a doctor anymore, of course. And in, in, in kind of the, the perception of a doctor, I came across an audio file in my research about food and it was about, you know, it was a, it was a closed door session. I think it, it might've been like covered up for a long time, but they talked about how they, they were now going to eliminate, and this was in 1969 that they were having this discussion and the audio file was validated and everything, but they said they're basically going to turn the doctor into more of a technician that they were going to eliminate the private doctor, that they were going to basically turn it into more of a 
company instead of you know instead of being private practice where it was a it was a one-on-one relationship with the patient and you with you saying that it, it seems like it played out just exact as exactly as they were saying in 1969 and how 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 it's changed gradually per decade you know i've seen it in my lifetime and how it is kind of a gradual change then all of a sudden you're like okay our medical system is nothing more than a maintenance system and it's not even a good maintenance system at that yeah and you know again sort of getting back to you know how our worlds intersect uh you know i know that you speak uh you know uh, a lot about how the same thing is happening around our food. Uh, you know, our food used to largely be produced by your local rancher, your local farmer, and now it's largely, you know, produced and delivered uh, by these large multinational corporations. Uh, and the independent farmer, the independent rancher has largely been, you know, squeezed out uh, of the market. Uh, and it, it's just sort of, you know, interesting to see that parallel. Yeah. And it is a parallel, you know, and I associated it to the loss of the value of the United States dollar. And I, I, I focus further back in the 70s, of course, because, you know, we bring up the 50s and the 60s and what took place with cholesterol and the fat fiction, just all the things that we've talked about already. But if you look at the devaluation of our dollar going off the gold standard in 1971, and I'll just use it to food and money. As our our money lost value, the value of our food was also taken away. And and you look at these charts, and you look at the, let's say, obesity rates through the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, you can correlate the, the, the devaluing of our nutrition in our food to certain situations that happened as we globalized, globalized our food as the dollar lost more value and as our nation went into a state of, you know, being extremely, you know, unhealthy into where we're, we are right now with metabolical failure and bankruptcy as a nation and it's, it's reached our kids to a level that I don't think a lot of people understand. 46% of our children between the ages of five and 11 are now overweight or obese and that's the age of five to 11. And if people cannot understand that that is directly correlated to our consumption and what we're consuming and the, the basically, you know, we're in an inflated economy, how our food is basically so expensive now, the good quality food is being priced out of most families and out of, you know, households. By doing that, there's still plenty of food, but the nutritional value is is gone. And the nutrition is the value. And since there's no value as much as in the United States dollar, you can really correlate that together. And it's a fascinating study if you sit down and, you know, truly look at that. One thing that I want to do as far as moving forward, because we understand there's an issue, how do we step forward in the next, you know, year 
two years, in 10 years to where we can help change a generation of, of kids that are already getting a bad rap right now as far as getting a start in the world with having, you know, the, the best type of protein that they could ever have. How do we get back there? What do you see that you can, you can help, uh, help me leverage within you being in the medical field, me being part of the beef initiative and, and really talking about nutrition? What, what are we missing that we need to move forward with? Well, I think, you know, one of the things you said there uh, about how we have devalued uh, nutrition, you know, the nutritional value of the food we're eating and, you know, the value has shifted towards basically the amount of food that we're eating. Uh, you know, it's interesting that when we started getting focused on calories, uh, you know, again, you go back to the 1950s, you know, people didn't know what a calorie was. No one was counting their calories. No one was worried about how many calories they were eating. Um, but th this concept got introduced that, you know, it was important, you know, it was the end all and be all essentially of, you know, of the food that we were eating was the amount of, was the calories in it. And we stopped focusing on the nutritional, uh, you know, value, uh, the, the, the nutrients, the vitamins, the minerals, uh, you know, the amount of protein in our food. And we got to a place where we could deliver uh, a lot of calories without adequate nutrition in them. And that's essentially what processed food is when you look at it. Uh, you know, it delivers cheap calories without the nutritional, you know, uh, kind of value behind that. Uh, and the food that is high in nutrition, uh, you know, nutrient dense foods like animal products uh, or even, you know, well-grown, uh, you know, plants, uh, vegetables, uh, these have all been, you know, sort of devalued. Uh, and, you know, made into a, 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 a scarcer commodity, I guess you could say. And, and like you said, they've been priced out of the market for a lot of families. Uh, and that is a fundamental problem. You know, so ultimately, I agree with you. I think we do need to get to the younger generation on this um, because, you know, the childhood obesity rates are shocking and they're accelerating. You know, even when we just look at the past two years, uh, you know, and this was, you know, there was a study that came out a few months ago and it was in the context of the COVID pandemic. Uh, but what it pointed out was that the, ch the rate of increase of the childhood obesity rate had increased dramatically over the past two years. Uh, so, you know, we're really sort of on that logarithmic path where, uh, you know, we just have skyrocketing child obesity rates. And, and, you know, that just can't end well. You know, I see it every day in my practice now as a heart surgeon. You know, when I finished my training 15 years ago, the average age of the patients that I would operate on was, you know, mid to late 60s. And today, the average age is probably in the 50s, and it is not uncommon that I do heart surgery on 30 and 40 year olds. And that, you know, should be shocking. It is shocking. Uh, and that is what we have to change. And again, you know, the reason that people are getting heart disease in their 30s is because they're getting obese, you know, at five years old. 
Uh, and that is what we ultimately need to change. And I think the only way we can change that is by getting to the younger generation and teaching them the value of nutrition, not the value of the amount of food that they eat. And whatever you do, you have somebody that comes in in their thirties and forties. Do you ever kind of, you know, you, you do your questionnaires as a doctor. Do you, do you ask them kind of their, their whole history of their consumption model that they've always followed? Is there, do you see patterns that, that, that is easy to identify that is something that's like, okay, this one small thing, if we can start changing across the board is going to start making a, a change. Do you see something that is, is commonplace between all your patients to be ended up in the same place just at different times into your offices? Yeah. I think the commonality is that they have gotten away from eating whole real food. You know, they eat, largely uh, more, more and more processed food. Uh, and that can be the sodas that they drink. That can be, you know, the, the cereals uh, that they're eating for breakfast every morning. The, you know, the, the snack foods, the candy bars. Uh, it, it's the frequency with which we eat anymore is alarming. Uh, and then, you know, the fact that most people can't even identify what whole real food is anymore. You know, it's interesting when I was writing my book, uh, you know, one of the simple concepts I tried to get across around nutrition is just to eat whole real food. And as I was talking about that kind of on social media and stuff, I would oftentimes get the question, well, what is whole real food? And I came to the realization that most people don't even understand what real food is anymore, uh, especially, you know, our the younger generation, because they have been raised in an environment where, you know, they really never have had whole real food. Uh, you know, I grew up in the 1980s. Uh, you know, I would say it was largely the same, although, you know, things were starting to shift. You know, clearly when I think about, you know, the foods that my grandparents ate and the food that my parents were raised on, you know, they still understood what whole real food was. They largely were cooking at home still. Um, but, you know, when you look at sort of, you know, starting, you know, with our generation or, you know, with my generation and then younger, um, they don't even realize what whole real food is anymore. They have no concept of where their food comes from, how it is produced, how it is grown, and all of these you know, important concepts that you're, you're talking about. I think those are the fundamental concepts that we need to get back to teaching to our children if we want them to be able to reverse this, uh, this downward spiral that we're in around our health. It is. It's a, it's a new form of ownership that we have to come to uh, come to terms with. Um, you know, we're not going to bring everybody along with us, but I know there's a lot of people out there that are awakening and they're having this awareness as far as for themselves as individuals, as for themselves as parents, so they can have some true um, parenting and some stewardship within their childhood's health. You know, moving forward. One thing that I do tell a lot of people to, you know, let's not get overly complex on this. Let's look over our shoulders and kind of see how our grandparents were able to function. 
let's look at the food like you brought up earlier. You know, most of our protein, most of our produce was localized. And it is something that is, you know, deteriorated throughout the years. But if we, if we can look back and kind of reflect on our history a little bit and really just kind of break down food in a more simplistic way to where we can say, mm, you know, I'm, I'm really just going to pursue, let's just define the whole foods that I'm missing out of my life. And you can make a small list of them. Let's start with animal protein. You know, that's why I created the Beef Initiative. I'm in Texas. We have cattle. Well, animal protein is by far the best nutrition that you can get. It is it is what has led us to where we are as far as a nation, as far as a people, us as men, uh, women as women, children as children. And by doing that, it's like, okay, let's just focus on the cow. Let's just learn more about the cow. Let's learn how to um, source the cow. Let's go and meet the people that source this animal protein for us. Let's have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. Let's ask them, would you please teach me on how you do what you do? You being a rancher, an animal protein producer, would you please teach me? Because I want to know more. And by doing that, we're, we're basically being very intentional about our planning for our meals um, the, the type of nutrition that we know that we verified where it comes from a relationship with somebody that we know that is producing our food. It slows our approach down. It, it, it kind of eliminates that instant gratification that we all battle with food because our food has become a drug. It's become a drug of taste. It's become a drug of uh, necessity because, you know, eating complex carbohydrates, you know, every four hours or highly processed carbohydrates, I'm sorry, every four hours, you're, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be hungry again. And it becomes a hamster wheel of consumption. And if we can bring a low time preference that has intentionality, that we know exactly where our food is coming from, and it's going to make our lives, our brains work better, and our hearts work better, um, our weight control is going to, you know, improve. It really doesn't have to be overly complicated. We don't have to look at all the different diets. What we can do is to start on one source of animal protein and let that be the catalyst of your change and let that be your compass. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, it, it really, you know, it, it sort of amazes me sometimes. And, uh, you know, sometimes I really, you know, have to step back and question myself about, you know, is the solution this simple, you know, it, and I just, I always go back to just eat whole real food. And, you know, people uh, come to me with an increasing variety of, of problems that they're looking to solve around their health. And, you know, almost universally, the answer is, you know, just eat whole real food. Uh, I, I haven't seen that make anything worse. It makes most things better. And yes, you know, there are some, you know, things that it's not going to solve. I'm not going to, you know, sit here and say, you know, that everyone's going to live forever if they just eat whole real food. Uh, but I am pretty confident in saying that the more that people eat whole real food, the better their health is going to be universally. And, you know, 
that will help to then relieve some of the burden from the healthcare system. We will have a lot less sick people. And then we can get back to doing, you know, a, a much better job of taking care of those people that are still sick because the system won't be overwhelmed anymore. The doctors won't be overwhelmed anymore. And, uh, you know, we'll have more resources available uh, to deal with the sick people if we can just get a lot less people sick by eating whole real food. And, and it, it, it can be that simple because both of you and I live that way. I see it all the time. I mean, we know tons of people and that, you know, are becoming a big collective of, you know, this type of proof of work that we're all searching for. One thing that, you know, I, I want to bring into this as well is if you look at a food supply system and an apparatus of a food supply, well, we, we get a lot of diets. We get a lot of, you know, academia education about nutrition. It is amazing how we always, every 12 to 13 months, there's always a new way to look at food. There's always going to be a new solution. And if you tie that into, into our monetary system and you look at it, how it's not based on any type of scarcity, it's of abundance. You know, we can print money at any time. And we do. We just did. So therefore, we, we can really consume at any time as well. It, there's there's not a lot of friction to be able to get, you know, highly, you know, processed food that tastes good. And that's that's basically become the consumption model. And once you realize this and once you do the cost breakdown, uh, eating animal protein more, uh, you know, decreasing the the highly processed carbs out of your life, you actually do save money on food. And that, I think that's a, something that goes missed on a lot of people because they look at the industrial food complex and you look at the beef manipulation right now that's going on with pricing. You know, if you're going to still continue to source your protein from these supermarkets that are controlled by these global food corporations, then your food is going to go up. But if you're if you're contacting your local producer, your actually food costs are going to go down. And if we can get that awareness, that's what the beef initiative is all about. And within the beef initiative, I'm bringing in the medical you know profession because this has to be leading in part of you know making those changes. And, and, you know, that's why I think you and I have had such a good relationship in, you know, the social media world is that there is something that's going on here as far as a cohesive understanding. And it's going to take several different people from several different industries, from medical, from the food supply to basically, let's even say the money supply, of course. And we're all talking and we're all, we're all converging at the same time. By saying that. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think you're exactly right. And again, getting back to that sort of low time preference uh, view of this, um, you know, people need to realize that the cost of their food is not just, you know, the amount that they're paying at the supermarket or, you know, even at the farmer's market or, or you know, hopefully directly with your local, you know, rancher. Um, but the cost of our food really includes the impact that it's going to have on our health and the long-term effects of that. And, you know, if we really sat down and thought about, you know, what that processed food, which is cheap at the time that we buy it, 
but very expensive over the long run to us. You know, what that is truly costing us, uh, I think, you know, people would start to change uh, pretty quickly. In, it's a good point. And in, in, there's so much that you want to provide as far as education. Let's talk about, let's talk about your business model now. I mean, I'll say what I know and then, you know, I'll let you elaborate more, but you know, you've written a book that's been published. You have a podcast that you have, you have your practice, uh, you do some traveling kind of give us a, an outline of is, as far as your arsenal, of that education, how you're delivering it so people can know more about you, where they can find you, what are your plans moving forward? And then I'll kind of come back and say, you know, this is how I want to work with you, the doctor with the beef initiative. And we can kind of formulate a plan that people can kind of follow us on both sides of this coin. And it'll help really start painting a picture for saying, Hey, I'm taking that first step after I heard this podcast. Yeah. So again, you know, ultimately my goal moving forward is to get as many people uh, to understand, you know, the steps that they they should be taking to to stay off my operating table. Uh, you know, I will be very happy if I put myself out of business as a heart surgeon. Um, and so, you know, as you said, I, my, my book uh, was published uh, last year, Stay Off My Operating Table, widely available, you know, uh, across all the usual channels. Um, I have a telemedicine practice where I work with people one-on-one -on, -one, uh, on preventative health. Uh, and, you know, that can be across the spectrum. I have people who, you know, have heart disease, have had, you know, heart surgery, and they're coming to me to, you know, try and, uh, you know, start to mitigate the effects of that. And then I have people who, you know, aren't unhealthy yet. They want to stay healthy. And I work with them across the continuum to, you know, figure out how to, you know, remain healthy, how to get healthy if you're not healthy. Um, I, you know, I, I give talks, uh, I, at, at medical conferences, uh, I have started to talk to uh, business groups. Um, I work with businesses uh, and I design programs uh, around employee health to help, you know, businesses as a whole get their workforce more, you know, healthier, uh, because that has lots of, uh, you know, positive effects both on the business and on the employees. Um, I have the podcast, as you said, it, it's also called Stay Off My Operating Table, and it is widely available. And I'm really just looking to connect with as many people uh, from as many different sort of sectors as possible that all, you know, interact and, and uh, you know, people like yourself, um, you know, the, uh, I, I've, I love the conversations that I have with ranchers, with regenerative uh, ranchers, regenerative farmers. Um, I really, you know, I just find that aspect of it so fascinating as well and talking about the quality of our food and how better to deliver it locally to people. Um, I, you know, I, I, although it's obviously not my area of expertise, uh, I'm trying to contribute to that movement as much as possible. And then it, it just has, you know, naturally segued into our financial system and, you know, getting into Bitcoin uh, is just a, uh, I think unavoidable, uh, you know, uh, part of this because 
Um, as you said, you know, a large reason that we have gotten to where we have gotten around healthcare is because of the just, you know, devaluation of the dollar, uh, getting off the gold standard, all of these things have led us uh, to where we are today. So I think it's it's almost impossible to really want to work on one aspect of this without, you know, kind of interacting with all the other aspects of it. It's a good point. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up the Bitcoin. You and I have talked about, you you know, setting up to where moving forward, you'd like to to accept Bitcoin as far as some of your, your practices, because you've kind of gotten away from the insurance model in parts of your business in that umbrella. Um, you're still, uh, are you still wanting to start considering taking Bitcoin as far as is, is some of the the uh, the services that you offer? Yes, yes, that's definitely a uh, vision of mine, a goal of mine to figure out how we can make that work. Uh, and not only, you know, it, it, it's not something that I even really want to do for myself individually. I want to be able to set up a model that then other physicians can follow uh, to be able to do that as well. Because I think, you know, having that, uh, you know, method of exchange uh, between, you know, the, the, again, getting back to that direct relationship between the patients and the physicians uh, without all of those other uh, forces in between um, is a big part of this. And I think Bitcoin is, you know, a perfect vehicle to accomplish that. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we've kind of delayed out a little bit with uh, it, within the beef initiative. It's like we're building the, the transactional tools, the software, you know, this is innovation. It takes a little time uh, to build these layers. And, you know, it, it, it is it, it's kind of a tough game, but we're so close right now to where it's going to be pretty streamlined moving forward as far as being able to, you know, the ranchers accepting Bitcoin uh, being ease of use as far as that transactional taking it place if it's e-commerce online in person whatever you know this takes a little time you know i think we're there to where i'm going to bring in a team member to you to where we can actually start from scratch and kind of really build that model that you're talking about you know i've kind of been holding off and i wanted to you know kind of let you know tonight that we're we're kind of ready to move forward with you know helping you out and and, and really look at it where other physicians can use this i know several physicians right now they're kind of transitioning as you are and you know being be, be able to bring the financial aspect into this because you have lost a revenue model that you were used to and so i think we're going to be able to move forward with that in going back to your speaking you know you go to medical conferences and everything we're going to have four conferences this year in the united states and we're going to kick off one in uh, kerrville texas in april april 23rd 24th and 25th we're going to also have one in uh, colorado and we're going to have one in Georgia. And at the end of the year, we're going to have one, I hope, in Florida. That's the one that I'm not for sure exactly the, the location. But I would love for you to come out and uh, be one of the speakers at one of these conferences that we have because we're going to bring in, you know, the rancher. We're going to bring in the regenerative grass farmer. We're going to bring in, you know, a financial aspect of it. Somebody that used to be in, being in the financial markets and now they're, they're transitioned into big coin and we're going to have medical to where where we are as a nation how we can get better and how we can improve so uh, hopefully that's something you and i can kind of coordinate that we can get there and get a really good date 
um, that, that would work for both of us. Yeah, definitely. I and in the yeah, oh, I think I think it'll happen. Um, in the meantime, let's let's let everybody know where we're going to go to find Doctor Philovadia so they can start changing. Uh, you know, taking those first steps. Yeah, so um, you know, uh, ovadiaHeartHealth.com, O-V-A-D-I-A HeartHealth.com. Uh, that has all the information about how to uh, connect with me. Uh, you can set up a call with me to dis- to discuss whether you know joining my practice as a patient makes sense for you. Uh, on social media, I'm most active over on Twitter at iFixHearts, and uh, I am also on Instagram at ovadiaHeartHealth. And, uh, you know, but uh, I'm always open to connecting with people. I I love having these discussions uh, around, you know, health and food and all the other aspects of it. And uh, ultimately, I want people to understand that they are in control of their health. They need to take back control of their health. Each one of us needs to demand to be healthy And if you're not getting the answers from your physician about how that can happen, uh, you know, it's time to seek out the physicians that are going to help you understand that. And uh, it may not be me. There are many other, you know, excellent physicians within the metabolic health space uh, that are really coming to this understanding of how what we eat is such an important determinant of our health and as I said, it, it, I just want people to get that hope back to understand that they can be healthy. Uh, you can remain healthy as you get older and seek out the partners that are going to help you to do that. I think that's I think that's good motivation. I think that's it's definitely intentional thinking is required. I always like to tell people, you know, we're trying to build communities here, but you cannot have a community unless you have a very strong individual. It is, you know, we have to step back. We have to look in the mirror. We have to ask, you know, and we have to ask ourselves, why do I desire what I desire? And let's have that check. You know, just let's, let's have that moment of clarity because there's plenty of solutions right in front of us. And it doesn't have to be a game changer of money. It doesn't have to be because I can afford it. It has to really to be ready to do it and to be serious about it and to take ownership of it because we all deserve to feel better than we probably do. Uh, There's a roadmap there that we can get there. And, you know, I like that, you know, the people like you, you know, we're trying to innovate here. We're trying to change things. And I, I can't see doing it any other any other way than we're already doing it. We're we're coming together, you know. We're good people are meeting like-minded people, and so everybody out there, you, you have faith in 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 what we're saying. There, there's proof of work here. It's going to get better. There's going to be better access. There's going to be less confusion. There's going to be more of a consortium of effort and of knowledge and of uh, intelligence. So, Dr. Philovedia, thank you for being on Texas Slim's Vision. And, um, you know, you're you're going to come back, I hope. Let's, let's get you back here whenever the spring hits. And uh, let's kick off the spring and get people outside. And let's get them uh, eating some animal protein. And let's keep them off of your uh, operating table. How's that? Definitely. That sounds great, Tex. 
All right. You have a good evening. We'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks guys for everybody's attending, uh, share, uh, like spread this out. This is good information. This is uh, worth an hour of your time. Thank you. And, uh, come to the beef initiative. We'll welcome you in. Here at the Beef Initiative, we encourage all you ranchers out there to tell us who and where you are so we can let everybody know they're looking for you. This time I'm shouting out KNC Cattle out of Austin, Texas. KNCCattle.com. Cole, he's a fourth generational Texas rancher. He knows what he's doing.